Hello, friends, and welcome to the Travelers Institute Risk and Resilience Podcast, where we explore issues at the intersection of insurance, business, and public policy, and offer insights and practical advice for both businesses and individuals in today's world of rapidly evolving risks and opportunities. I'm Joan Woodward, president of the Travelers Institute, and I'm really thrilled to be here with you today. Lost in a fog of words. That's how my next guest describes how we all feel when we read a wordy email or news story. If you're like me, you get and you send hundreds of work emails every day. You probably don't read half of the emails you get, and maybe people aren't reading yours either. How do we make work communications more effective and to the point? Legendary co-founder of two hot media startups, Axios and Politico, and co-author of the best-selling book, Smart Brevity, The Power of Saying More with Less. Mike Allen joined me to share his transformative method for punching through the noise to get people to pay attention to what matters most. He gave us a masterclass in effective communication. Take a listen to what we learned. Today, we have an expert with us who is going to share some tips and tricks to help get our messages heard. And it starts with really adapting to how people consume content. Mike Allen is the co-author of Smart Brevity, which Arianna Huffington called the strunken white of the digital age. That's the element of style book we all grew up on. He's co-founder of Axios, where the Smart Brevity Whiting style was born. He also co-founded Politico, where he started the morning newsletter Politico Playbook. Before that, he was a journalist at Time Magazine, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Richmond Times-Dispatch. Mike, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Joan, Madam President. Thank you to you and your team, Ginny, the whole team, for uh, hosting us. And congratulations on this great platform you built in hard times for the country and the world. You've built something really cool. So thanks for including us. Oh, well, thank you so much. So Mike, let's just start. Tell us how this book and the writing style really came about. I mean, you've been a journalist for many, many years and writing as we all grew up in college and in high school, you know, you get a professor to say, write that 30 page paper. And so we all kind of been trained in our formal education that, you know, you have to write a certain amount of words or a certain number of pages to make your case. But how did this brevity style come about? No, Joan, you're 100% right that we mistook quantity for quality. And I was one of the worst offenders. I don't know if this is supposed to be a confessional, but I was a newspaper reporter. And so what did I do? I inflicted words on you. I came up through the Fredericksburg Freelance Star in Virginia, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, Washington Post, New York Times. And what did we do? We produced words. And there, at the Post, there was even a term for it. They called it a notebook dump. And the notebook dump was we took everything we had and we put it on paper, printed it out, threw it at your house. And what we realized when we got into the digital world, first at Politico and now at Axios, was that no one was reading most of those words. And I'm going to hit on a couple of points that I'm going to call gravity. And gravity is just, it doesn't matter if you want to believe it or not, it's just true. 
And it is a fact that most of what all of us write, most of the words that we put so much effort to, that we think are so fancy, that we think are so insightful, people aren't reading most of them. And that's the secret of smart brevity, is that in this conversation today and in our book, Smart Brevity, we're going to give you recipes, formulas, tips, tricks for having people read more of your of those beautiful words that you write and type and share and put on decks and put out on Zooms and help you win the war for attention, a war that's being fought on our phones and on our uh, Zoom meeting screens, on podcasts, and Smart Brevity will help you cut through that fog of words. Great. Well, thank you for that intro. Mike, we like to turn the tables on our audience and ask them a few questions just to get a sense of how they're doing in their daily lives and work. So we're going to ask the audience two questions now. First one, how much of your work time every day is spent reading or writing emails? Just on email. How much of your work time during the day is spent reading or writing emails? Some, most of the day, or all of the day. That would be bad. All of the day, writing emails to each other. Joan's already judging you if you're going to say all. That's right. So come on, people. <laughs> let's hope there's not a lot of us that's been all day long doing that. Okay, let's kind of cut it off here. We have almost 2,000 responses. And sad to say, Mike, it looks like most people spend most of their day, 60% of our audience says most of their day is spent writing emails and reading emails. What do you, what do you think of that? I think that uh, that is reality and smart brevity to the rescue. Help is on the way because we can help you make sure that your emails are read and even more so the people are going to act on them. I'll tell you a quick story about that that you will find in our book, Smart Brevity. And that is there's coming to you from Axios HQ in Arlington, Virginia, very close to where we are, not far from McLean for uh, Jenny and others who are listening, uh, not far from here in Falls Church, Virginia. There's a middle school teacher that I talked to who would write emails to his parents, uh, important updates, things that he needed them to do, wanted them to do, changes in the schedule, things that they needed to know. He thought his parents must be dumb because he would send an email and they would write back and they would ask him the exact things that were answered in the email. I'm sure that's not happened, never happened to anyone who's on this Zoom. I didn't know him, but he read my morning newsletter, Axios, AM. And he saw the smart brevity style going back years that Axios now six years old. We've had the smart brevity style from day one and have evolved to learn from it so that we can have those learnings uh, here in our book. And he saw that in Axios AM, we emphasized the key points with bold and with bullets, numbers, creating hierarchy, creating order, helping point the audience to the key points. And he was like, huh, uh, I kind of like that. I'll try it. And so he did that with his parents and voila, all of a sudden his parents got smarter. They suddenly weren't asking him the questions that asked him things that he'd already answered in the email. And here's the learning for you. And here's the actionable point for every single person who's joining us today. And that is that the magic was not in the fact that he used bold or that he used bullets or that he used numbers. The magic was that he took the time to figure out what is it that I want these parents to know? Like, what is the most important thing? What do I want them to do? And he highlighted that. 
And it was the fact that he had spent the time to do it that resulted in the action that he wanted. So that's going to be our first takeaway, which is if you think about this Zoom, if you think about a podcast, if you think about an email, if you think about a report, if you think about a sermon, any piece of content, if you think about it, if you have one takeaway, if you learn one thing, that's a win, right? Think of how many pieces of content we interact with every day where we get nothing from it. It just like floats off into the ether, right? If if you go to an industry meeting, if you're on a Zoom and you learn one thing, boom, that's awesome. So Smart Brevity flips that and says, it is just reality. Here's a second piece of gravity, a second piece of gravity. A, people aren't reading most of our words, but a second piece is the most that someone is going to take away from your beautiful report from your awesome Zoom, from your lovingly written email is one thing. And so just lean into that. Know what it is. Don't let them pick. Don't throw eight things out there. There's one thing. Figure out what that is. Just write it. Just put it at the top. That's the hack. Just say it up top if it's a Zoom and say, this is the one thing I want you to remember. This is the one thing I want you to do. And that will empower you. And the beautiful thing about this is it doesn't matter if you're the intern or if you're Madam President, that if you follow these tips and this approach, that you will be heard, you will have more power within your organization and within the people that you're interacting with. That is very well said. Very well said. And I remember getting, I have four kids, Mike, and I remember getting all those emails from all those teachers all the years. And it's like, you know, a sea of what do I really need to know and pay attention to? It's wonderful you helped that that uh, teacher. Okay, next audience question. Let's see how this one goes. So what percentage of emails do you skip or delete without reading? First one, I read all of my emails. I can't believe anybody would check that, but okay. Uh, uh, Joan, you're you're totally wrong. We're going to have a bunch of inbox zeros on this call. I just know it. Okay. All right. And how about more than 50%? Looks like what what percentage of emails do you skip or delete? It looks like to me, it's going to come in around 20% is the answer. All right. What do you think of this, Mike? So 20% of emails. You You should listen to me. The fifth (laughs) of people are inbox zero. I just knew it. Wow. 20% of us read all our emails. Is that a waste of time, Mike? Well, sure. And it's it's not our fault. It's because of the approach that people take with our emails. And, and here's a way to make sure that you are in other people's 100%, to make sure that, that, that when you send an email, people uh, answer it. And that starts with the subject line. And you'll find that Smart Brevity, in addition to like talking through our theory and approaches of this is super practical and super actionable. And so I'm going to really zoom in and be super practical for a second and talk about the subject line. Now, one thing that we tell our reporters is if you think about it, if you get the subject line wrong, you might as well skip all the other words because if people don't open your email, it doesn't matter how good it is or how clever it is or how great your reporting is. But our subject line tends to be an afterthought, right? Like we put all our time in on the email and then right before we send it, we might drop in a subject line. Whereas Smart Brevity teaches you, if you want to be in that 100%, if you want people to have the muscle memory to open your emails, be super intentional about the subject line. And the reason that we suggest in the book Smart Brevity, three or four words in your subject line is that that's the real estate that you have right here. That's what people are going to see on your phone. And 
So I pay very close attention, whether it's one of my newsletters, whether it's something I'm sending to my boss, whether it's something I'm sending to my colleagues. I pay super close attention to what are those three or four words. And if it's a super important email, I'll even send it to myself. So I see what it looks like in the phone and and know how I'm going to win that war for attention. And so we know that we're focused on those three or four words because anything else is a waste. They won't see it. And those three words, you want them to be as powerful as they can be. And we talk in Smart Brevity about strong words. And what's a strong word? A strong word is something that I can visualize, that's visible, that I can that I can touch. Like, like a weak word is, is an abstract word like policy, situation, challenges, right? Like these words that we love and journalese, legalese, policy ease, uh, corporate ease, but that they aren't words that we use in human conversation. So, so three short, sharp, punchy, strong words. And a little story about this, Joan, that goes back to the very beginning of my journalistic career. When I was a, a cub reporter just out of school, uh, working at the Fredericksburg Freelance Star, they were kind to include me in a writing seminar with one of the most famous writing coaches in America. She was from the Dallas Morning News, Paula LaRock. And she loved what she did. She was awesome what she did. And she had a whole room full of, of up-and-coming whippersnappers like myself. And she read us a passage. And this was now 30 years ago, right? I remember it super vividly. It was about a fish going around a rock. And I could picture it in my mind's eye. It was a it was a lovely piece of writing, very vivid. And Paul Larock said to this room full of young smart Alex like myself, what was distinctive about this passage? What made this passage different? And nobody got it. And the answer was that every single word that she had read to us was one syllable. And there's a real learning in that, that the one syllable words, punch, sharp, strong, tend to be like strong, memorable words that, that are going to really break through. And so when I'm, especially when I'm writing a subject line, a headline, uh, the top of a report, every word that's three syllables, I see if I can make it two syllables. If anything that's one syllable, that's two syllables, I see if I can make it one syllable because I'm going to be making it stronger. I'm going to be making it more vivid, more likely that it's a word that I can draw a picture of, that I can touch, that I can taste. Like that's going to be a stronger word than your challenges, your policies, and your longer, vaguer words that we tend to use. So to recap here, subject line, three or four words, because that's the space uh, that we have. And use that space to its best advantage by using strong words, words that I can picture, words that I can draw a picture of, words that I can touch. And if something's three syllables, I'm going to try to make it two. If it's two, I'm going to make it one. And that's going to be a subject line that's going to leap out of my inbox. And uh, Joan, before we leave this, I'll tell you a little story. Tina Brown, uh, one of the most famous editors ever to live, she uh, had something when she wanted you to really read her email. And if you get an email from Tina Brown, you're probably going to open it. She would have a one word subject line. And the one word was you. Everybody's going to open that 100% open rate. You got it. Got it. Okay. Because everyone wants to know, what do you think about me? Yeah. Okay. So your partner, Jim Vandehei, recently said, every business, I'm going to quote, every business nonprofit organization in the world needs to rethink how it communicates to its employees, donors, and customers, and shareholders. So tell us why, or you know, Naxios, who you like to say, tell us why it matters. Yeah, why it matters is that 
the world is has changed before us. That that six years ago, when Jim and Roy and I were thinking of starting uh, Axios and we were traveling around the world, talking to people exactly like the people on this call, like smart, curious professionals who need trustworthy, efficient information in their life and work. When we were traveling around asking them for their pain points in information consumption, there were two things that we heard. And these were the germs of smart brevity. And this is how, this is why we all need to rethink our communications. One, the firehose, right? Just too much, right? Like more awesome information, but also more junk, right? And that was six years ago. Imagine how much worse that firehose has gotten. Imagine how your inbox has changed. Imagine how the lock screen of your phone has changed over the over the last uh, six years. And the second thing we heard again and again, even in academia, which surprised me, and this was the germ of smart brevity, was if I put something aside to read later, I never do. The New Yorkers pile up, our pocket fills up, the browser tabs, tabs open, and we never go back. And so the magic of smart brevity is it helps you make people smarter in real time. That if someone is used to saying, oh, I'll read Joan's email later. I'll come back to that. We know what's going to happen. And so that's why I talk about this muscle memory of the people will see your email. They'll know, I'm going to get something out of this. This is going to make one point that's going to make my life better. It's going to tell me one thing I really need to know. It has urgency. It is asking me to do one thing, or it's telling me one thing that's going to make my life or work better. And if people get used to that, then they'll open your emails and act on them. And that's what empowers you as a communicator, no matter where you're at in the ladder of the organization. Whereas the opposite, think of the people who have the reputation of emails that are just words, right? Like like long reports, things that, that maybe there's a point in there, maybe there's not, but I'm not going to find it. Those are the emails that go unread, or those are the emails that if you're a boss around there, maybe they'll say, ah, oh, I'll come back to that, but they ain't going to. And so that volume is what's changing the way that we communicate. And here's another one, like the fact that, that we're all on Zoom, that we're all scattered, that, that so many of us are now working from anywhere. If your organization has even one person who works remotely, you need to radically rethink how you communicate. Because when we're communicating on a Zoom, like it tends to be much more transactional, right? We hop on and we talk about one particular thing and the higher purpose of what we're doing, the mission of the organization, the things that are important to the leaders there are less likely to be communicated than they were if we were all in person. Somebody the other day uh, used a term for me that I hadn't heard before, and they talked about a drive-by. And a drive-by is when you catch someone at the beginning or at the end of a meeting as you leave or go. Much less likely to happen on a Zoom, right? Because we all get in, hop on, we all uh, do whatever we got on to do. We all wave and we say goodbye. And we've not picked up some of those intangibles that are so important to running an organization, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's a college, whether it's a government, whether it's an office, whether it is a company, whether it is a firm. And so we have to be intentional about that, know that we need to communicate um, our priorities, our goals, our mission. Smart Brevity will help you do that because it's not going to be buried in a bunch of words about something else that we're going to say. Here's our higher purpose. Here's our mission. 
Here's what's important. Here's what you should know this week. You do the work for the audience. Do the work on the front end. Think about audience first. What do I want the people on the other end to do, remember, or internalize? And figure it out. Say it clearly. Say it sharply. Say it vividly. Say it memorably. And the hack I told you earlier, the trade secret, just put it up top because that's where they're going to read it. Great. Great. I want to get into the book a little bit more. In Smart Brevity, you talk about a formula core four. So it's for scanners and skimmers. Um, which is all of us. All of us. So what are those four elements, many of which we see at Axios? So tell us about the core four when you're thinking about writing. Because I, I'm, you know, as you talk about the audience, a lot of our business leaders on the on the call today, you know, we have employees. And so we want to communicate directly to employees that's impactful, but then we also have the external stakeholders and understanding that audience and who you're speaking to. But how does the basic your core four kind of play out in those? scenarios. Yeah, thank you. And just to to unpack audience first for a little bit is to is to think about who it is you're trying to reach, whether it's internal or external. And thinking to yourself, what's going to resonate with them? If I'm in their shoes, what's going to matter to them? And that's why I socialize my emails with a group. Before I send something to a large group, I talk to some of the important stakeholders there and get their feedback on my format and how I'm expressing it, because this can be very generational. Like there can be emojis that I might use to my leadership team and other parts of my organization might find it kind of cringe, right? And you don't want to get that wrong. And it's better to get it wrong with two or three people that you trust who are part of your kitchen cabinet, who advise you that you stress test, guinea pig, uh, your communications with, as opposed to having it go to hundreds of people. So that's audience first. But just to dive in real quick to the core four, and this is a very actionable, useful format that's uh, in the book that works for any type of organization. And we've been, it's been implicit in some of the things that uh, we've been talking about uh, today, but the core four, you start with what's new? What's that one thing? I want you, I have one big idea. I have one important point. Like, what is it? And I've spent the time to think about it, to isolate it. What is it? What's new? They're always the holy grail. If you were and I were to sit down and have coffee or Irish coffee or chips and salsa, if we were sitting together, what would we start out? Like, tell me something I don't know. What's new? Always the holy grail of a conversation. Second, why it matters. This is the communications version of all politics is local, right? Like I used to work at Time Magazine and the way that we said it there is, why are we invited to this party? Like, why do I care about this? And so related to the person in the audience, and then uh, you have some space to give some data by the numbers, give some context, give some background, give some color, some key quotes, because a very important point that we can talk uh, more in a separate question is a very important point, point important point about smart brevity is it is short, not shallow. That if you're doing smart brevity right, you don't have to lose context or nuance. What we're losing is fluff and padding and words that actually dilute or confuse our point. But if we're doing smart brevity right, it's actually the opposite of losing context or nuance that we actually will say it more clearly and sharply. So the core four, what's new, why it matters, give me some data, give me some background, give me some key points. And then the fourth part of the core four is go deeper, 
Connect me to that original report. Connect me to an outside data set. Show me your work. I can tell you based on the data that we see very few people will click that. But the fact that it's there, A, shows them that you've done your homework. Right. But B, I think they just like the idea that it's there. So one sentence, what's new? One sentence, why it matters. Give me some backup. Give me some data. Give me some color. Give me some quotes. And then give me the power to go deeper. Like the, that core four is a very powerful formula for communications, whether it's internal, whether it's external, what, whatever kind of an organization it is. Okay, this is great stuff, Mike. Let's keep going. So you in Axios uh, uses bold and you use bullets for structure. You also talk about axioms, right? By the numbers, one big thing, what's happening, reality check. You use emojis sometimes. Well, let's let's kind of dig dig through that. How many people should be using lots of bold bullets, emojis, et cetera? Yeah, those can really help you. And so I'm going to give you a third piece of gravity. And these are things that you may not believe them, but they just are true no matter what. The first one was that most people don't read most of what we write. The second one was that at best for many given pieces of content, people are going to remember one thing that you say or ask them to do. And the third piece of gravity, just reality, like you don't have to believe in it, but good luck to you if you don't believe in gravity. The third one is that when people come to a block of text and for the book Smart Brevity, we did delved into a lot of neurological studies, eye tracking studies, a lot of research that have been done. When people encounter a big block of text, they skip it. It doesn't matter how much work you put into it. doesn't matter how profound it is. If we see a sea of words, that big old notebook dump that we used to see inside the Sunday paper, we skip it. And so what bolding bullets, some of these other devices that you'll see spelled out in Smart Brevity do for you is they help get us away from the big glob of text that we know people are going to skip and break it up in ways that are digestible, that will stick in their mind. So a couple of ways that you can do this is uh, knowing what your key points are, put them in bold, separate out your key data points uh, with bullets, number them, give them some hierarchy, and emojis can uh, help show your audience you've really thought it through. So the emojis are not decoration. The way that we teach you to use them in Smart Brevity, they help guide your audience through the text. So if I want to get specific about something, I'll say zoom in and I might put a microscope emoji. Or if I want to give the big picture, I'll say zoom out and I might put a telescope or for the big picture, I might put a picture frame uh, for by the numbers, have a little wit, have a little fun, like delight is an important part of smart brevity. Uh, for by the numbers, I'll put an abacus because it's fun, but we know what it is. And what do all those things do? Yes, they break up the text. They get us away from a sea of words that we know people are going to skip, but they also signal to the audience, I respect your intelligence. I respect your time. And I've thought through how I've structured this email or this report or this update. And it is short, not shallow. It actually gives you more than a report that's just got tons of words. I went to, the other day, I went to visit one of the leading communications firms here in DC. And they said that after they had a long report and they were going to make it up in final form, and they would look for a pull quote, some quotes to highlight out of the report. 
and they would find that there weren't any, there wasn't anything that was interesting enough to pull out. By the time you're trying to make up your report, it's too late, right? Like that's why we think on the in Smart Brevity, we teach you, show you, take you by the hand to figure it out on the front end so that you will be able to uh, produce something that people are going to want to read. And a tool to do that is bulleting, bolds, the emojis, but those are the means, not the end. That the key to smart brevity is thinking through what you want to say, thinking about the audience, like isolating what you're going to say, and then saying it and using some of these tools to get people away from that huge uh, block of text. One more quick story about that, that that we have in the book Smart Brevity is there was a book, there, excuse me, there was a minister in Alexandria, Virginia, David Glade, and he shared with his congregation some life advice that he'd given his kids. And the advice boiled down to do the next right thing. And his thinking was, we can't change our past. We don't really know what's coming down the road. All we can do is make the decision that makes sense and is the right thing in with the information we have. That's obviously good advice, but the point of it, the reason that, that I highlighted here is the magic of do the next right thing is you're not just going to sit at a laptop and type that, right? Like that came from a lot of thought. It came from study. It came from research and then boiling it down. And that's what Smart Brevity does is have the conversations do the work, do the research. We tell people, think, don't type. Think before you type. Talk before you type. Have conversations. And then when you go to communicate what you have to say, it's going to be important, going to be clear. And uh, some of those tools that you mentioned can help you get it across. Great. I, I really like the examples. I think they're, you know, real life. And and so maybe tell us how you worked. I know you've been working with British Petroleum, right? And to incorporate smart brevity into their communication strategy. So give us a give us a story there and how it's kind of worked out there. Yeah. And I think that the lots of the companies who are joining us today will see this that the BP was a, a pioneer in using smart brevity. They got our newsletters. They saw like how powerful they were. They knew that their execs liked to get information in the Axios format in smart brevity. And they said, oh, let's us try that too. And so we worked with them and that a little bit was a germ of the book because we realized, oh, smart brevity can help other people. We've been applying it to a media company but other people can learn from it too. So with, with uh, BP, we worked with them and helped them turn their daily communications into smart brevity, started first just with the leadership team, the executive team, the CEO's direct reports, and then grew it to their team, grew it to the headquarters, and eventually grew it to all BP employees around the world. And a couple of things happened. One was the open rates for their internal communications skyrocketed because most of our internal communications just is done in old ways, done in ways that don't get the result that we want. But they developed that muscle memory. People saw, ah, these emails are gonna tell me something important that's going on in my organization. It's from my boss. I'm gonna know what's important to them. I'm gonna be more fluent in what we're doing. And therefore I'm gonna be more powerful within the organization. This is going to help me get ahead. Who's not going to open that email, right? And because they learned about that format, they learned to open those emails. But here's something else magical 
that happened. Jeff Morrell, who was the BP executive who, who brought Smart Brevity in, was he saw, and recently joined uh, Taneo, was a former ABC News correspondent. I knew him when he covered President Bush and then became the Pentagon uh, press secretary. So he'd worn lots of hats and knew the importance of clear, powerful communication. And within the organization, he became a seer. He became an innovator. Other parts of the company, other functions in the company wanted to write in smart brevity because they, they saw that it was getting the attention of the CEO, that it was getting the attention of the board. And they saw this was a future-oriented way to communicate, that, that because of the way that all of our lives are changing, because whether it's because of Zoom, whether it's because of remote work, because it's, whether it's because of the volume of emails that we get, with all those things changing, if you can be the person within your organization who's going to communicate in an innovative, powerful way, then suddenly you are going to have more power. People are going to say, I wanted to see how to do that. I want to learn from that. I want to do that too. And just a little handy dandy and actionable item for people who are having trouble convincing a boss or a peer or a client that this is a great way to communicate. I would just say at first, do it both ways. Like show them the long way, the report where you can barely find a poll quote. And then show them in smart brevity, something that defines the exciting, actionable, useful, game-changing, life-changing, world-changing points and highlights them and put them next to each other and just say to them, what would you respond to? What would you make a difference to you? One more quick story, if I may, Joan, from our smart brevity experience, Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, does an annual shareholder letter. And Jamie Diamond has thoughts on lots of things, whether it's China, whether it's a cryptocurrency, whether it's the consumer balance sheet, he's got lots of thoughts. And they all went into a shareholder letter, which is extremely well-read on Wall Street, but is scores of pages. And so we took that letter for J.P. Morgan Chase and put it into Smart Brevity so that they could send it to some of their stakeholders. And it created a whole new audience for this longer letter that was very well read on Wall Street, but hadn't penetrated other parts of the culture. And they suddenly they were seen as pioneers in communication. So the same thing will happen to you, your office. Like if you communicate in smart brevities, other people are going to say to you, I want that. I think oh, this is great. This is great for all of us. We have a number of questions coming in, Mike. I want to get to all of them because so many of what you already talked about are, are coming into us, especially about how to try to getting our colleagues to adopt smart brevity or those who just send you know paragraph upon paragraph. So I know you've given some advice there. I want to talk about one thing you said in the book that the smart brevity way of writing and communicating can be much more inclusive. And so this is a high priority for a lot of us in, in business today, diversity, inclusion. And so how is it that smart brevity is more inclusive? Yeah. A key point that we make uh, in the book, and I appreciate you asking about this, Joan, is if you aren't communicating inclusively, you aren't communicating effectively. And smart brevity can actually help with more inclusive communication, diversity, equity, inclusion have been hallmarks, pillars of the Axios culture from day one. And smart brevity can help you with that because it strips away a lot of the like like fancy complications that we used to put around our communication and just speaks clearly 
in the way that I would speak to a human, like one thing that is that one part of the power of smart brevity is that it's conversational that, you know, I mentioned like, what if we were having chips and salsa together, right? Like when I'm talking to you in person over a drink or over breakfast, there are social cues that keep me from being boring, right? Like I don't use what my grandma powers would call $10 words, you know, fancy words, SAT words. Um, I don't repeat myself, hopefully. I don't tell you things that you already know. If you were sitting in person, if you start to zone out, I can sense that. And so when we're sitting in person, I'm not going to use fancy words. I'm not going to complicate it. I'm not going to say it in ways that make me seem smart and make you feel unsure about what I'm trying to say, because I want you to like me, right? Like I want you to have breakfast with me again. And yet, and I think that this will resonate with everyone on this call, when we sit at a keyboard, we do all those things, right? And professional people are paid to be good writers are the worst at it, right? Like when we sit at a keyboard, we tend to use those fancy words. We tend to repeat ourselves. We tend to layer in background that you maybe already know. The other day, one of our reporters used the word aforementioned. And I'm like, if we're sitting in a bar, you're not going to use the word aforementioned. No, so, never. Never in my bar days did I say aforementioned. Right. And so if we're going to try to communicate inclusively, and if we're going to think about all the kinds of diversity across our organization, being able to like say what we really mean, say it clearly, say it in a way that is accessible to everyone, like all of those are hallmarks of inclusive communication. And I just to underscore, if you're not communicating inclusively, you're not communicating effectively. That is great, Mike. So a couple of questions around sales and a lot of people are in the sales business here. How do you think about the sales uh, roles and jobs with smart brevity? Okay. This must be a setup because this is one of my favorite. No, uh, it's not. It's a, these are real questions. A lot, yeah, a lot of people uh, are in sales. This is one of my favorite topics about smart brevity. All right. Okay. So the smart brevity book has 28,002 words in it. Those are some of you on this call read Axios newsletters, which we appreciate. And at the top of every Axios newsletter, we say smart brevity count, and we give the number of words and the number of minutes. So for instance, the top of my newsletter in the morning, Axios AM, is typically 1,200 words, which is four and a half minutes. I'll say at the top, uh, smart brevity count, uh, 1,200 words, four and a half minutes. The smart brevity book, 28,002 words, those two words, because our partner in this, Workman, has been a fantastic publisher for us. They told us that was the minimum words that you need to put it in between hardcovers and sell it on smartbrevity.com. Those two words could boil down to, and this is going to be very useful to you in sales. The two words that I'd love for you to take away are just stop. So in the sales context, I will watch someone who's a good salesperson and they have a good product. And they're actually doing well with their prospect. But I read the body language of the other person. And the prospect is sold. They're ready to sign. But what happens? We keep talking. It is our just nature as humans. We just keep talking. And if the person would have just stopped, they would have walked away with an order. But they raised so many questions by keeping talking. that finally, the person, the prospect says, I'll think about it. And if they would have just stopped, they would have made that sale. 
an example of asking for a raise, right? Like when we ask for a raise, we tend to say, ah, I know times are hard. I know you have a lot on your plate. I know we have a lot going on. I know we're cutting back. No, like if you want to ask for a raise, know your value. Say, as Mika Brzezinski would tell us, say, this is what I've done. This is what I'm going to do. This is my value. And then just stop. And that's going to be much more effective than backing into it and giving them lots of outs. Because if you give them an out, they'll take it. Just say what your value is, say what you're asking, and then just stop. So those two words, just stop, can be very powerful in sales and in any kind of interpersonal communication. Got it. Got it. Okay. Another question coming in. We've got a number of these. Sometimes if I'm short and brief and don't give a long explanation, I sound cold or uncaring or just blunt. And sometimes, especially for women, this one woman is writing in, uh, we can't get away with that. Maybe a man could possibly get away with that, but being blunt or too terse or, you know, those kinds of worries, because in our culture, we like to say, thank you so much. And then email back, no worries, no problem. All those distracting things that, you know, can be left unsaid, but we want to be polite. And so what do you do with a coworker is constantly, you know, thank you so much. Did you have a good weekend? The fluff, the fluff, but the polite fluff that is expected in our culture and our society at, at work. How do you think about that? Yeah, this is a very smart question. I'm glad you asked it. And smart brevity actually leans into that, that every single thing that I've said during the 46 minutes that we've been talking is about being conversational, about being human, about being warm, about communicating as a human, the way that I would want someone to communicate respectfully to me, not as a robot. And so the fact that I've thought through the one thing that I want them to remember, the fact that I'm being respectful of their time. The fact that I'm saying it the way that I would say it if I were talking to you in person, like all of that leans into that humanity, leans into that warmth, and does not come across as curt or blunt. The fluff makes us feel good, but it doesn't do anything. There was an ugly Christmas sweater this year that said, I hope you're doing well in these tough times, right? Like we just type that, but that doesn't do anything for us. That that makes us feel better, but it doesn't do anything. Like what if that person has just gotten terrible news in their life? Like, like having that filler, that fluff doesn't do anything to make them feel better or to make me sympathize or empathize with them. Whereas if I start politely, warmly, we greet them as we would a human and just say what we want to say, and then thank them for their time. One of the big reasons that we put the number of words and the number of minutes at the top is to say to our reader, I'm being respectful of your time. I know exactly what I'm asking of you. I'm not going to waste your time. I'm not going to waste your intelligence. And I'm not going to insult your intelligence. And like one very actionable approach that I think will assuage the people who are concerned that this could look cold or blunt or too sharp, which none of us want because none of that leads to effective communication. Like none of that leads to people doing what you want. None of that empowers you. But the route to being warm, human, respectful, conversational, which is at the root of every single point that I've made during this call is, and this is, so I'm going to take my own advice. If you remember one thing from our conversation today, if you remember one thing from this Zoom 
webinar, if you remember one thing from Wednesdays with Woodward today, it is this, and that is anything that comes out of your office, out of your laptop, out of your organization, read it out loud. If something's going to come out under your name, whether you've written it or somebody's written it for you, read it out loud. And what is the magic of that? We instantly catch ourselves if we sound like a robot, if we sound too curt or too cold. We catch ourselves if we're using those $10 SAT words. We catch ourselves if we are being long-winded or complex and people love clauses, people love phrases, whereas the human mind likes subject, verb, object, like, like clear, uh, muscular communication. Funny story about this. We got a test of a newsletter and uh, luckily it was not, the newsletter was not out in the wild. This was an internal test. And I called one of the, one of the editors and I said, I know a secret. I said, the secret is that you did not read the lead of this newsletter out loud. He said, well, how do you know? I said, because if you'd read this out loud, there would be paramedics there trying to revive you because you would be so out of breath. And if we read something out loud, we instantly re realize how it's coming across, whether it's being effective, and a couple things. One is, if you aren't really sure what it's saying, spoiler alert, 0% of your stakeholders, internal or external, will know what you're trying to say if you're not sure. And here's another thing. If you start to bore yourself, no chance that your communication is going to be effective with the people who are trying to get to it. So human, respectful, warm, conversational, it's all the opposite of the robotic cold approach. And it's not because of the fluff. The fluff does nothing for us. People just read over it. Instead, we say, we're going to respect your time. And I'm going to talk to you exactly the way I would talk to you if we were having breakfast together. And I think, you know, back in the old days, Mike, when we started our careers, we didn't have computers, we weren't emailing. And so we're constantly picking up the phone and calling people. Mm -hmm. And there's a generational thing now uh, among our employees, our younger employees, you know, picking up a phone and calling someone if the email communication is not clear, or it's not getting to the desired response. I mean, how do you think about, say, we're not using smart brevity in our communications currently in an in, in organization that may be listening in. And our older employees, such as me, would say a younger employee, just call that person, just get on the phone and let's get this done because the email communication has been clunky or not has done the job. How do you think about that when you talk generationally to our younger employees about, you know, pick up the phone because the email is not working? Yep. And that's something that doesn't come naturally to yep. my nieces and nephews. Yes. So I would frame it in terms of effectiveness that like you can pick a role. Anytime you've got gone back and forth three times, probably at the most on an email, if it's possible to pick it up, the phone, do it because you're losing nuance. We start to talk to each other on emails in ways that we would not talk to people in person. And this is where you get the danger that we were talking about earlier, where it can come off as robotic or argumentative or can come up in ways that we don't understand. And that can be a diversity, equity, and inclusion issue that, that we're coming from a different frame of reference. We may have a blind spot and talking to that person as a human rather than over Slack or email can help bridge that. So it's not always possible, but most of the time, especially internally, it is possible to pick up the phone 
And the way that I would phrase it to someone that I was trying to make this case to is say, I would do it this way because this will help you have more power in this interaction because this can help you get to yes because. And it's all about an email can let us talk past each other. It can let us be passive aggressive. It can let us be aggressive aggressive. And whereas if we're talking on a phone, those human cues that help us communicate more effectively for the ways that we've talked about over coffee, Irish coffee, chips and salsa, breakfast, like whatever you want your interaction to be, like if we do that on the phone, it can save us time and it can get us what we want. Got it. So Mike, you've had this amazing career, right? Including founding these two powerhouse media companies. So tell us about this world we're living in now with so many organizations, so much news and content. What what has made Axios succeed, succeed in your view and what's next? Yeah, thank you, Joan, for that question. And what's made Axios succeed is my now 500, 600 colleagues, every person who's walked through this building, something that uh, Jim Vandehei, Roy Schwartz, and I, the three co-founders of Axios and the three co-authors of Smart Brevity, something we've been intentional about from the beginning is we've said we want this to be the very best place for the very best people to work. And the beauty of this book, Smart Brevity, which you can get on smartbrevity.com, is that it's the fruits and learnings of all of those colleagues. Smart Brevity when we started six years ago, almost to the day, six years ago, the month, January, in January, 2023, we started in January, 2017. We've learned a lot and we've learned from each other. And whether it's our visuals colleagues with their incredible illustrations and data visuals, or whether it's a young editor on the news desk who spots a better way to say something, zoom in, zoom out, whether it's uh, something that we've learned from trial and error of sending scores of newsletter every week. Like all of the learnings from that come in to Smart Brevity, the book. And I would boil it down to audience first, thinking about the other person, be conversational, read it out loud. Like all of those will be cues that will help you converse conversationally. What's next? Smart Brevity is going to be even more vital. Like our inboxes are just going to get fuller. The fog of words around us is just going to get worse. And it's funny, I was just having a conversation this morning with a, a week one Axios colleague. We were walking back from breakfast here in Arlington, Virginia. And I was saying to them, like the fact that there is so much junk out there, the fact that there's so much pollution out there, that actually is an opening an opportunity for your organization and for ours. And that is if your office, if your function within your organization becomes known as a place that's going to bring clarity, that emphasizes the mission and higher purpose of the organization, that figures out the one thing that you want people to do or say, that says it in a memorable, vivid way, like you suddenly become infinitely more disproportionately powerful, vital, effective within that organization, because you're going to be an island oasis in this fog of words. And so smart brevity, audience first, talk, don't type, think it through, talk it through, communicate inclusively, know what your blind spots are, stress test your communications with others in your organizations. Those approaches not only will make you a more 
a cleaner and more effective communicator, but it also will make you someone within your organization that people look to as an innovator and somebody who is the place to turn for what's next. Mike, I cannot imagine a better way to kick off our year with our webinar series with you today, because I think this is this is what we try to be, is the place people go to to learn, right? And, and figure out ways to better their personal and their professional lives. And this has just been an amazing session today. So I really want to thank you. And I urge everyone who hasn't read it, we have given out the number of books, but do get the Smart Brevity book because I got to find my copy. I got to tell you over the holidays, my four kids read all this. And even the ones who had to write those 30 page papers for law school found value in this. So thank you, Mike, so much. We're so grateful for your kicking off our year with us. And we want to be that go-to place. And the other thing, as I told you earlier, you know, my CEO said to us, just don't be boring which I think is another way to think about how we communicate in our daily lives. Be the go-to person in your organization, right? I love that. And uh, thank you for the thoughtful questions. I really enjoyed this conversation. Joan, to you and your team, congratulations on building a very cool platform. On smartbrevity.com, we have some free tips, free data for you to look at on smartbrevity.com. And so I will say thank you, and I will take my own advice, and I will just stop. Thank you, Mike Allen, for your smart brevity insights. And thank you for tuning in to the Travelers Institute Risk and Resilience podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about the Travelers Institute and to sign up for our email list. We send updates on our upcoming podcast, webinars, in-person events, and more. I'd also love to hear what you thought about today's episode and what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. You can shoot me a note at institute at travelers.com or follow me on LinkedIn and send me a message there as well. Thanks again for tuning in.